All right, so this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew. Um, And if you missed last week, we're coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and now we're in Matthew 8, where Matthew starts to kind of highlight Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, And in it, we're going to see every week Jesus' authority increase in different ways. And uh, right now, we're smack dab in the middle of Jesus uh, healing three different people. Uh, And they're all healings done with people who are kind of on the fringes of Jewish society. So last week we saw Jesus heal a guy that had leprosy, who lived in a remote village outside of town because he was unclean. Uh, This week it's a Gentile, who guys like Jesus, who were Jewish, uh, wouldn't have interacted much with Gentiles. And then next week we're going to see Jesus heal a woman. Uh, So in this section of Matthew 8, as we'll continue to see this morning, uh, Jesus is going to carry with him a level of authority that nobody else had. Uh, First it was he he taught with authority, now it's healing with authority, and with that authority, uh, Jesus is going to continue to transform what exactly does the kingdom of God look like. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus not just heal a man because of the man's extraordinary faith, we're also going to see Jesus take people into the kingdom who are not like him, and basically bring them into his family. Uh, So we've got a lot to get through this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 5. While you turn there, let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Uh, God, I thank you for this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, as we open it, I pray that you open up our hearts, minds, and spirits just to what you would have for us. Uh, Lord, that we could see Jesus for exactly who he is. And uh, God, that you would open up hearts in this room to hear your word clearly. Uh, Lord, let me get out of the way and just simply preach your word and let your spirit move. It's in your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so Matthew chapter 8, uh, we'll start in verse 5. Uh, Matthew says, when he, that's Jesus, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Uh, so it's Jesus, he's entering Capernaum now that he's off the mountain where he did the Sermon on the Mount. And Capernaum is like the center of Jesus' ministry. Uh, so it's, it was a very bustling city, Capernaum was. It was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You see Jesus do a lot in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's a lot going on. It's the north shore of that, and we see Jesus do a ton of his healings there. We see Jesus even do a ton of his teachings in the synagogue in Capernaum, which was oddly enough built by Roman soldiers. Uh, And that's where we see our main character introduced this morning. So just like the leper last week, uh, we have somewhat of like an odd type of person that would come interact with Jesus. Uh, So this guy is in the Roman army, and he carries the title of a centurion. Uh, So a little background on what that is so we can familiarize ourselves with what's going on. Uh, Again, Jesus is Jewish, okay? And this guy is in the Roman army, which doesn't necessarily mean he was Roman, but we know for a fact that this man is a Gentile. Uh, Just for definition's sake, if you're not familiar with Scripture at all, a Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish. So a non-Jew is a Gentile. And if you're familiar with Scripture or not, uh, Gentiles and Jews did not get along. 
uh, there was definite racial tension between the two groups. So I'll get to that in a second. But a centurion in the Roman army was probably the most well-respected person in the Roman army. So therefore, in the community, they were one of the most well-respected people in society. You never see Scripture anywhere in the New Testament uh, talk anything bad about centurions. They never do it in a negative sense. Uh, So a centurion would have anywhere from 80 to 100 soldiers under them. Uh, They would have to give those soldiers commands just in their daily lives and then obviously when they go to battle. So you can see that this man that comes up to Jesus, he carries a lot of responsibility in his life. And being that he's in Capernaum, a largely Jewish society, there's not a huge Roman army presence there. Uh, So this man is probably pretty well known in Capernaum where Jesus is ministering. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if Jesus is familiar with him. I would assume that he probably knew who he was, uh, but we for sure find out quickly that he's very familiar with Jesus. Uh, That's why we see here in verse 5 that he comes to Jesus appealing to him. Uh, The NIV says that he's asking Jesus for help, uh, but the good old King James uses the word beseech, also known as beg. So there's a sense here of desperation in the centurion. Again, there's some parallels to the leper from last week, right? And here's what he's appealing about. Verse 6, the servant says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. So first off, we see that he addresses Jesus as Lord. Uh, Not meaning that he's confessing Jesus as Christ, uh, but rather he's recognizing Jesus as somebody who has authority. And his servant is at home in his house, paralyzed. Now, his servant is probably a guy who works for him. Uh, Maybe it's one of his hundred soldiers. I personally think this is probably the centurion's like right-hand man. Uh, But the servant is having some health issues. And as we can see, he tells Jesus, my servant is at at my house. He's paralyzed. Uh, That word in the Greek means that either his left or his right side was completely shut down. Uh, Most scholars think it was either something like he had a stroke or maybe he had polio. But the parallel passage in Luke, uh, Luke tells us that it's quite the dire circumstance. Uh, In Luke, Luke tells us that the servant is near his death. Uh, the, The centurion's servant is at the centurion's home. He's near death. He's in need of healing. Uh, Last week, it was the leper who had an incurable disease. This week, it's a centurion's servant. He needs a miracle. That's why the centurion is coming to Jesus with a posture of desperation. So Jesus responds to him in an interesting way in verse 7. Matthew tells us, and he said to him, I will come heal him. Now, this gets a little bit weird for some reason, uh, from Greek to English. It, it, in English translations, it isn't always like perfectly correct. Uh, so for pretty much like all of church history, since the Bible was written, uh, this is Jesus asking a question, not making a statement. Uh, and that's the reason why I've been given a little bit of background on what's going on here from just a social standpoint. You have Jesus, a Jew, with the centurion who's for sure a Gentile. And you have the centurion servant lying paralyzed in the centurion's home, which is a Gentile house. Again, that's no big deal to us in 2023 America, but this is a huge deal to a first century Jew. A better translation of what Jesus responds to him is more like a question. It's more like, you, the centurion, you, the Gentile, want me, Jesus, the Jew, to come to your house and heal him? 
Remember last week, if Jesus were to touch the leper, it could make him unclean. Now here we are this week, and if Jesus goes into the Gentile man's house, if he just simply walks through the front door, Jesus being a Jew walking into the front door of the Gentile man's house, right away he will be defiled. So Jews did not go into Gentile homes, like at all. In fact, you never see Jesus enter a Gentile dwelling place until he's put on trial after his arrest. So in fact, in the book of Matthew, you see the first time Jesus is arrested, he goes before the Jewish Sanhedrin. They take him, and then they take him to get tried in the Roman government, right? They take him into a Roman office. The Jews in the Sanhedrin take Jesus in there. They drop him off at the front door. They don't even walk in the Roman office. That's how it was back then. A Jew going inside a Gentile's dwelling place did not happen. That's why Jesus reacts the way he does in verse 7. Like, you want me to come heal him? Kind of like, bro, I'm not coming over to your house. You're a Gentile, I'm a Jew. But notice that's not what the centurion was asking for. He's just telling Jesus, Jesus, my servant's in bad shape. The guy never even invites Jesus over to his house. And so now we start to see how the centurion sees Jesus. Uh, Look at verse 8, and then we'll go to verse 9, because that would make sense. So verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord... I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Notice again, this is the second time he calls Jesus Lord. And his response is kind of on par with Jesus' question in verse 7. He's like, of course, Jesus, I know you're a Jew. I'm not asking you over to my house. In fact, he knows Jesus has authority, not only just a little bit of authority, He knows that Jesus has authority to heal. Jesus has been healing people all over the land, so he comes to Jesus that day knowing that there's a level of authority that Jesus has that nobody else has. This guy knows more about Jesus than even the Jewish people do, or at least he sees him in the right way that the Jewish people do not. He says, no, Jesus, I don't need you to come over. Just speak words, and I know that my servant will be healed. Uh, You see, this man knows a thing or two about authority. Look at verse 9. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Remember, this guy's got 80 to 100 men under him. He doesn't just know authority. He knows the power of words. He knows that someone in authority, if they have words to say, they're usually followed, they're usually obeyed. But it's not just him as a centurion that Matthew wants us to understand. Matthew wants us to understand this man's faith. He goes to Jesus on the premise that Jesus doesn't even need to be present with the servant to heal him. He can just simply, from a distance, from miles away, just simply say a word and it will be done. Look at Jesus' response. He escalates things a bit. In verse 10, it says, While Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Uh, This is one of two times where we'll see in the Gospels where Jesus is like either surprised or like he's marveling at something. And in this case, it's the fact that here it is, a Gentile man, a man who's not Jewish, a Gentile man, 
is stretching his faith to the point that his ultimate rest is in the authority of what Jesus can do. Uh, Keep in mind that nothing written before this would show that Jesus healed somebody remotely. Uh, So we don't see in any of the Gospels before Jesus does this, we never see him just speaking words and someone who's far away gets healed. Uh, Remember chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, it tells us that all the sick, the diseased, the paralyzed, the people who were demon-possessed, they were all being brought to Jesus. Jesus would touch them and heal them. In the case this morning, the centurion is like, yo, I don't need the healing. I'm right in front of you, but my guy at home needs your healing. So Jesus is taken back by this. The Jewish Messiah, seeing that this Gentile soldier has an unbelievable amount of faith and trust in what Jesus Christ can do. Not just that, this centurion has a belief in the authority that Jesus possesses and can see that that nobody else has. Jesus looks around and notice here in verse 10 the shift in the audience of who Jesus is talking to. He's no longer talking to the centurion. He marvels at the man's faith and then he turns to those who followed him. Who are those people? That's the Jews. All the Jewish people who probably followed him down the mountain, all the Jews, the ethnic Israelites, Jesus looks at them and runs to an absolute. Notice the picture that Matthew is painting. He says, with no one in Israel... Like literally all the Jews, all the Israelites, all of them, Jesus in his ministry and his time on earth had never seen that type of faith. This is the Jewish Messiah that the Jewish people should have recognized, yet they didn't. Even though he taught with a special level of authority, even though they were marveled at the things that he was doing, even prior to the Sermon on the Mount, him healing the sick, even prior to Jesus' ministry starting, you had John the Baptist proclaiming loudly to the Jewish people, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. Yet here we have the Jewish people can't see it, the Gentile guy is the one who recognizes it. So Jesus goes on in verses 11 and 12. He says, truly I tell you, anytime Jesus says that, that's important what he's about to say. He says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds like fun, right? Uh, I'd say that these two verses are the key to this section, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Uh, These are the key. You could focus on the healing that Jesus does, which we will, but the point Jesus is making is just as applicable today as it was back then. Uh, Remember, context, the Jews are God's promised people. All throughout the Old Testament, and now Jesus is in ministry, the Jews see themselves as just because they're Jewish, just because they were born in a specific household, they see themselves as grafted into all the promises that are made to them. So when Jesus uses these terms, when he says many will come from the east and west, they're familiar with the Old Testament. They understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, So to see this, we have to hang out in the book of Isaiah for a second. Uh, So Isaiah 43, Old Testament prophetic book, uh, God is talking to Israel, his chosen people, the Jews. Uh, God tells them in Isaiah 43, he says, fear not for I have redeemed you. And these are promises from God that these people would have known. He says, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, 
They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Skip to verse 5. He says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Uh, This is a picture of God's righteousness. This is God telling His people, the Israelites, the Jews, think of it like a large, like all-encompassing wings of like an eagle, where He's gathering His promised people. He's saying, my people are going to come from every direction. Where God has these promises for His people, He's saying, I'm going to take you in. I'm going to protect you however you need to get here. If you've got to cross water, if you have to go through a river, it doesn't matter. I'm going to protect you. If you have to walk through fire, it does not matter. I am God. You are my people. I will bring you in. Those are the promises from God to His people, the ethnic people, the Jews. They leaned on those promises. For 400 years after the book of Malachi, they waited for those promises. They relied on their God as their Savior. And with that, they knew that one day there will come a day that they all longed for, a day when they, his people, would be gathered together as a people and feast at a banquet. Again, this is the book of Isaiah, God showing the contrast between who will be at this banquet and who won't be. Isaiah 65, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out from pain of heart and shall wail for a breaking of the spirit. Notice the contrast. You have highlighted in red, inclusions, and you have not highlighted exclusions. Uh, One group of people will eat, the other people will go hungry. One group of people will drink, the other will be thirsty. One shall rejoice, the other will be put to shame. One will sing out of gladness, the other will cry out of pain. That's where you hear weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? The Jews read this, and they read the book of Isaiah, and they sit there, even though they're right next to Jesus Christ, and they're like, man, we're in. We're in because of the way they were born. We're in because of our ethnicity. They're the ones that are feasting. They're the ones reading this. They're drinking. They're rejoicing. They're singing. So back to our passage this morning. Jesus says, many will come from the east and west and recline at that table, that feast that I just referenced in the book of Isaiah. He's saying these things to the Jewish people off the heels of the Gentile being the one with extraordinary faith. He's saying this off the heels of basically saying the faith of Israel is weak. So something that said that was always heard like, oh, we're in because of our ethnicity, Jesus is saying, no, actually some people who are outside of ethnic Israel are going to be the ones who are feasting at a banquet table with your forefathers. Meanwhile, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom, those are the Jews, those, that's ethnic Israel. He's saying some of the sons of the kingdom will be excluded from the table and thrown into a place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, if you give me the option, I could either eat great food and drink great drinks uh, versus being in darkness, weeping and gnashing my teeth. I don't think that's a real tough choice to make. One is a place of comfort. The other is a place of immense, immense pain. So what's our application today? I think it's relatively easy. 
Jesus is wanting us to see like our background, our ethnicity, like any of that. None of that matters in the grand scheme of things if you do not have the faith necessary to get you to the banquet table. You're not in because of the household you grew up in. You're not in because you walked in here today and you're a good person. No, you are in because you've placed your faith, belief, hope, and trust in him. One of the hardest things about having a church in a culturally Christian place is that the people who grew up culturally Christian think they're automatically grafted into these promises just because they were raised a specific way. Uh, Let me give myself for an example. I grew up in church. I went to a huge church in Central Phoenix growing up. I went to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, knew all the Bible stories. I could look up scriptures with the competition like as fast as anybody. Uh, Morally, I was a good kid. I'm not trying to brag, but I'm a rule follower. That's just who I was. Guess what? None of that meant anything. It was Christ that needed to save me. There had to come a day where I had to like give my life to him, put my faith in him. That's the scandal of the gospel. It is so easy to do, yet it is so hard. Hear what I'm saying. It is not your works that get you at that banquet table. Your righteousness and how great you are don't get you anywhere. What gets you at that banquet table is salvation in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, what does that mean? It means that God's grace is offered to you through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When that grace is offered to you, you are the one who either accepts it or rejects it. So faith, when Jesus tells us to have faith or belief in him, means that you are putting your hope and trust in who he is. So it starts with belief. Belief that Jesus, the one who's healing people, the one who's teaching in that way, everything he says, he's saying exactly who he says he is and it's all true, that you believe that. Believe that Jesus is the only one with authority. Belief that when Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, it paid for your sin. There's nothing you could do to pay for your sins. It was Christ's death on the cross that did. Belief that three days after he dies on the cross, he resurrects and in this moment offers you eternal life. It's sitting there today with belief that only Christ can pay for your sin. Only Christ's righteousness is what gets you a seat at that table. Belief that only Christ is the one who can get you there. So that's belief. What about faith? Uh, Faith is confidence that when you commit your life to him, that Christ will take care of you. Christian life doesn't stop at belief. It continues in faith. Faith that God's good. Faith that God's ways are better than your ways. Faith faith that scripture should be the thing that guides you, not culture. Faith that God will guide and protect you. Those promises in the book of Isaiah are true to every Christian now. It does not matter how we grew up. None of us needed to grow up in ethnic Israel. The promises that God protects you through troubled waters, that God protects you through storms, God protects you through fire, faith that living a life with God is better than living a life in sin and essentially without God, faith that God's working even when you're struggling and you can't see him. Basically, your entire life as a Christian after that moment you believe is now an entire life where you live it by faith. If you have belief If you have faith, you feast at that banquet table. If you don't have belief, if you don't have faith, 
If you're depending on you to get in, how good of a person you are, Jesus is very, very clear, and these aren't scriptures that most preachers run to. He says that those people are cast into outer darkness. When he says outer darkness, it's like the most outer darkness that you could possibly think of, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, it's God's grace that's offered to you through Jesus Christ, but yet you're the one who has to make a choice. For so those of you who are not Christians in here, if you walked in the door today, you don't proclaim Christ, I never want to stand up here and beg you or twist your arm to be a Christian. I just want to say, because I've experienced it, that God is good, God is trustworthy. So my question for you this morning is, would you believe in Him this morning? Anything that you've done before this clearly hasn't worked. Would you walk in here and just give your life to Him? Would you believe in Him? Would you start living your life that faith that God will take care of you? Uh, Matthew finishes this story of healing in verse 13. So Jesus opens their eyes, right? Hopefully he's opened their eyes to the doors of the kingdom. He's saying like all from the east and west are going to be welcome. Now he goes back, looks at the centurion, and it says, and the centurion said, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So just like last week, Jesus touches the man and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Here we see that Jesus simply speaks words and at that very moment, the servant was healed. Uh, last week, I mentioned over and over again, as we walk through the gospel of Matthew together as a church, we're gonna get a really good picture of how loving and caring Jesus Christ is. Uh, last week, it was a man with physical purity issues. This week, it's a man with racial purity issues. I think the easy application for all of us in this room is to leave here with the faith of the centurion, right? To have such a faith in Jesus Christ that we go to him with complete expectation that he has our good in mind. To have such a faith in Jesus that when we ask him to heal, he, we have the confidence that he will. So the question becomes, do we live life with that level of expectancy? Do we as Christians, the Christians that are in this room, do you have a relationship with Christ that you could say is fully reliant on Him? Are we trying to sit there and become righteous on our own? We're trying to angle our goodness to get ourselves a seat at that table? Or do we just sit there and rest knowing that Christ is the one who got us in? Uh, I know many of us in here, I think I know this church pretty well. Many of us in here have been going to church for a long time, but I want to remind you this morning who Jesus Christ is. In the midst of your sin in the midst of your shame, even as a Christian, Jesus Christ reaches out to you. This morning, you see him interact with the Gentile. That's what our sin is like to him. It's disgusting, but yet he draws near to us. As a Christian, if you're involved in sin, he draws near to you. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've drifted from your faith. Uh, your level of belief right now, when I talk about faith and belief, you just feel that's at a low level uh, your trust for him to take care of you has just dissipated because of some things that are going on in your life. I don't know where you're at, but you're trying to live this Christian life by doing all the right things, but yet Jesus still feels distant from you. Uh, all week, I kind of just prayed that if that's you, uh, this morning, you'd see a picture, Jesus interacting with this Gentile. This morning, Jesus is just kind of grabbing you tightly and saying like, even though you feel far away, like you can trust me. Even though it, things like aren't good for you right now, like you can come to me. Even if you're struggling, you can come to me with expectancy that just in a word, I could take care of that situation. Uh, for some of you in this room, you need to get back to an understanding of the fact that there was a time in your life when Jesus Christ saved you. 
You don't need to perform in front of Him anymore. You don't need to straighten yourself up to get into His presence. It's like the centurion. You just need to go to Him. Have faith in everything that He says is exactly who He is. Have trust that He will care for you. Uh, If you're drifting away from Christ, you need to turn around and give your life to Him. Uh, So I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, If you guys don't mind, would you all just bow your heads? We don't do this very often. Uh, I do this um, more or less so you can kind of get in your own mind by yourself, not worry about the people around you. Uh, I want to address two different groups of people in this room. Uh, First, maybe you're who I was just describing. Uh, You feel like you're drifting from Jesus right now. Uh, You're having a really, really hard time seeing his goodness. But this morning you see a man who's God in the flesh come to someone who's the opposite of him and provide from him because of his faith. Maybe this morning your prayer is something like, God, can you just increase my faith to be like that of the centurion? Would you allow me, God, to trust you more this morning? Would you allow me to rely on you this morning? God, would you remind me of the promises you've kept to me throughout my Christian life? Uh, The second group of people who have maybe heard this invitation, maybe it's the first time you've ever heard it, maybe you've heard this over and over and over again, but maybe you heard an invitation this morning of Jesus Christ asking you to join him at the table on the feast and you've never done that before. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. Maybe this morning you've seen clearly that you're heading to a place with outer darkness. So maybe you're seeing that Christ is the one who offers you a seat at the table and this morning he's asking you to pull up a chair by simply believing in him, by trusting that he is who he says he is, by seeing him as the only way to heaven, the one who encompasses all of truth, the one who can only give you eternal life. Uh, Perhaps this morning for the first time you want to give your life to him. So where you're at in your seat as I pray, uh, we're going to sing one final song right where you're at. Just simply pray to him. It doesn't have to be some awesome prayer. Just simply call out to God. Tell him, God, I believe in you. I believe that you are who you say you are. God, I just ask that you come into my life. I ask that you increase my faith. Help me to trust you. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for how great you are. Uh, Lord, I thank you for no matter how far we feel like we are away from you, uh, Lord, chapter after chapter in the Gospels, we see that Jesus comes near to those who feel far and makes them feel welcome. Uh, So God, I just pray that your spirit would move this morning, Lord, if there's people in here that don't know you, um, who are seeing that, uh, God, it's only you that gives us life, it's only your son that gives us eternal life, where we get to sit and feast at a banquet table one day with everybody who's ever accepted you. God, I pray for the people who don't know you and have never brought you into their life. Uh, Father, people who are just trying to do things on their own. Uh, Lord, I pray that they just let go of the tight grasp that we like to carry as human beings. Uh, Father, that we would be able to give those things to you and trust that you'll take care of them. Uh, Lord, I pray for the people in this room who are Christians who just feel like they've drifted from you. Uh, God, I pray that you remind them of all the things that you've done, that you've been faithful to us uh, time and time again as your people. Uh, God, the promises that you give us in the word are true. Uh, Lord, that when we die, we get to live eternity with you. Uh, So God, I just pray that the people who are drifting from you, God, would repent. They would move away from sin, move away from living a life of the world, and that they would walk toward you. Uh, So God, we give uh, this morning to you and uh, just ask that you continue to work in the hearts and minds of the men and women of this church. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.